the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. 17th of May, in case you're not keeping track. It's a Tuesday. It's Craig Roberts in your ear. And uh, thank you for tuning our way. Great to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline. We address issues of the day and their impact on your life. We'll do more of that today. Coming up later on this evening, hour number two in the program, we're going to switch to a all-too-familiar, all-too-painful topic. Bishop Pastor Darius Pridgen will join us, senior pastor of True Bethel Baptist Church and the president of the City Council in Buffalo, New York, will join us on the program. Um, He is wrestling through a lot of mixed emotions at the moment, undoubtedly so, as he prepares to preach the funerals of a number of members of his congregation that tragically died in a racially motivated hate crime on Saturday that claimed the lives of 10 innocent victims in Upper State New York. We'll get his insights on all of this and most importantly try to wrestle with just how should we as the church be responding. Pastor Darius Pridgen joining us tonight in our number two. Closer to home, an issue that I think is providing increasing frustration for parents, well, and parents and taxpayers for that matter across our state is what is going on in California education. You know, we used to thumb our nose at Mississippi as being the last in everything, particularly as it related to public education. And California apparently has decided, no, we're going to give them a run for their money. Would you be surprised at all if I told you that the most recent educational proposal coming from the governor's office would see California's paying $21,000 per year per student? For public education. And as a taxpayer, if you're wondering whether or not you're getting the most bang for your buck, well, let's put it this way. As we speak, 66% of California students cannot meet grade level proficiency. So if they're in the fourth grade, they cannot perform at a fourth grade level. 53% of eighth graders, for example, can't meet grade level reading proficiency standards. And if that more than half number isn't troubling enough, when you look at the performance of eighth graders that are in the low-income category, that number jumps to a shocking 82%. Meanwhile, meanwhile here in California, as we're throwing more money at the problem, instead of trying to focus on how we can give our students the best shot in a state that is so dependent upon 
education to perform within the STEM framework, right? Science, technology, engineering, and math. Because after all, that's a big part of what our state is made up of in the high-tech sector, particularly here in Northern California. Well, are we worried about making sure we improve those performance levels? Oh, no. No, in fact, one of the big things that has educational leadership in the state wringing their hands is the apparent fact that math instruction is failing to promote proper sociopolitical outcomes. And you say, great, <laughs> you, you meant to say social science or, or history, right? No, no, math, math, you know, where there's one right answer to every equation and every other answer is the wrong answer. Well, apparently this hurts feelings. And so we're changing the way we teach math in the state, at least that's the proposal, heading down an exceedingly dangerous road. Let's get some insights as to just how far down this rabbit hole we're headed. Lance Azumi joins us. Lance is the author of The Homeschool Boom, Pandemic, Policies, and Possibilities, Senior Director with the Center for Education and the Pacific Justice I'm sorry, the Pacific Research Institute. And Lance, as always, a delight and an education to have you join us. Thanks so much, Craig. It's a real pleasure to be on your show. You know, you would think in a state like California, as I suggest, where there's so much technology going on here, and we have institutes of higher learning like UC Berkeley and Stanford and, and UCLA, and there's so much of an emphasis on the need to be able to scholastically perform so that students can move on to careers that are so integral to our state in research and development and high tech and what have you, and yet sadly... Sadly, at least in the public education arena, not only are we not seeing the kind of outcomes that our money would suggest we ought to be getting, but instead getting caught up in what appears to be nothing more than political games. And I'm still trying to figure out what exactly is the socio-political outcome of math when, when I went to school, it was 2 plus 2 equaled 4, and if you came up with any other number, you had to go back and learn it all over again. <laughs> well, you're right to question that, Craig, because uh, right now California is careening down a path, you know, not towards improved math performance, uh, improved STEM performance amongst uh, students who really need that given the uh, 21st century economy that we live in, especially here in California. Uh, but instead of uh, giving those kids in our public schools those types of needed skills, instead what we're doing is uh, we're trying to make them into social warriors trying to politicize education, again, as you mentioned, not just in the social sciences, but actually in the STEM subjects, including mathematics. And that's why, for example, uh, you know, there's a proposal right now that has just come out uh, from the California Department of Education that would uh, uh, create a, what's called a math curriculum framework for California, which is basically the guidelines for math instruction in the state. And so if you look at that, what you find is that one of the main purposes that is stated in that document is that math, uh, the, the goal of this curriculum is supposed to uh, ensure racial justice and sociopolitical uh, consciousness uh, and social justice issues all throughout this uh, document. And you wonder, like, well, how can that be? How can you do that in mathematics when it should be something that is objective, dispassionate, and neutral? Uh, you're just learning uh, computational skills, really. 
how can you politicize mathematics? Well, it turns out it's very easy to do that. Uh, there's a, a lot of different ways you can politicize that and, and end up indoctrinating your kids, uh, the kids of California. Here, let me give you an example. There's a sample problem that is listed in this document in which uh, the, <laughs> you're given uh, different uh, family types, like two, a two-mom uh, African-American family, a Latino uh, mother, a single white mother, various types of different family groupings, and they are making a certain wage, and then the kids are given, what are the housing costs in different cities? And then they're supposed to make a determination mathematically, but also in terms of uh, social justice sense, are, are the wages being paid to those uh, workers uh, in those households quote-unquote fair. And if they're not fair, then what happens? Then, well, uh, teachers are uh, asked to consider inviting people like union leaders to come into the math classes in order to uh, uh, talk to the kids about fair wages and what should be the wages that corporations or businesses pay to workers. Uh, there's no balance whatsoever uh, about, you know, the, uh, government intervention or any of those sorts of things. And uh, what the... Um, uh, finality of the lesson would be is that if kids become convinced that the wages are quote-unquote unfair, they are then asked to write letters to government officials to change policy. And what is that doing in a math class? We, you know, I mean, are kids going to end up becoming better in uh, the types of skills necessary to, let's say, work for some of the high-tech companies in California? Not with that type of education. You know, I got to tell you what the, what this is alarmingly reminding me of. Uh, many years ago, I had the unique and pr rare privilege, um, in a somewhat clandestine fashion, to travel to North Korea. I, I, you know, ask any of yourselves, how many people do you know have ever been to North Korea? Probably not many. And one of the things that I was struck by, we had an opportunity to visit a school in Pyongyang, which is obviously set up to kind of be a dog and pony show for the rare foreign visitor that comes there uh, so that we would go home with a view of uh, just how wonderful and advanced and modern North Korean society is. I will tell you, Lance, though, that my conclusion was anything but what they were hoping for. One of the things that I found most appalling was Instead of the way I was taught math back in the dinosaur age, that uh, if you have uh, three apples and you take one and give it to Johnny, how many apples do you have left? Answer, two. They instead would politicize it by saying things like, you're walking down the street and you confront 10 American soldiers. You take out your pistol and shoot four. How many are remaining that need to be killed? The answer is six. And I was horrified by this fashion of politicization of math, leading obviously to the fact that the, the agenda of the Kim regime runs deep, wide, and touches on every single aspect of North Korean life. And I thought at the time, thank God that I live in America where we don't do that. And sadly, here we are 20 years later proposing that we do just that very same thing. Now, for listeners, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a dialogue or can't be a dialogue regarding uh, racial inequities or pay inequities. There's a place for that. But I don't think that math class is the place that that ought to be discussed. 
any more than we should be having debate over, uh, you know, the, 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 the history of, of American colonialism in our PE classes. But that is how deep and wide the agenda to try and shape minds is going. And believe me, these educators know exactly what they were doing, what they are doing. I want to come back to the conversation after a timeout. Lance Azumi is with us today. He is the author of a new book called The Homeschool Boom, Pandemic Policies and Possibilities. He serves as Senior Director of the Center for Education and the Pacific Research Institute. We're talking about a trend, a trend away from traditional K-12 through public education as increasing numbers of California parents are just saying, that's it, fed up, I have had enough. And quite frankly, that list ought to include even more because whether or not you have a child in public education in California, you do have skin in the game if you're a taxpayer here. And imagine thinking about the caliber of students or lack thereof that we are raising up to be the next layer, the next generation of members of Congress or the presidency. We are setting our nation up for utter, complete failure. Lance Azumi, my guest. More to come. We take a time out back to the discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking about education in California. Lance Azumi is with us. He is Senior Director of the Center for Education, Pacific Research Institute, also author of a new book called The Homeschool Boom, Pandemic Policies and Possibilities. And I I guess to the greatest degree, Lance, the pandemic here in California really kind of pulled the lid off of the the last of the, uh, how should we say it, the the wizard behind the curtain. As we began to see, not only were, were there policies related to COVID that became extremely problematic, but as parents spent more time at home with their kids during the pandemic, I think also gained a greater understanding of just how much they really don't know as a result of being involved in public education in our state. No, that's absolutely right, Craig. Uh, it really was, you know, uh, lifting up the uh, the blanket that has long covered uh, public education in this uh, state. I mean, what the uh, parents discovered is, first of all, the public schools were simply not effective at teaching the basic subjects to kids during the pandemic when you had uh, remote distance learning. I mean, a lot of kids were, you know, uh, barely online for maybe an hour or two during the time that the, the uh, pandemic was going on. There was virtually no real teaching going on, which is why uh, you see research that just came out uh, a few months ago showing that uh, during the pandemic, that, uh, you know, across America, you know, the kids lost four months' worth of uh, reading uh, loss, and they had four months' worth of reading loss, and five months' worth of math loss uh, during the pandemic. And if you were from a low-income family, for example, you experienced uh, six to seven months' worth of, uh, of, of learning loss. So, you know, you had these massive losses of learning. On top of the fact, as you pointed out in your uh, monologue to start uh, off this hour, that we were already at a very low level to begin with. Now you add on top of that uh, additional learning losses because of the ineffectiveness of the public schools, and then you have a huge disappointment 
academically with the schools on the part of parents, but then also, too, like we were talking about in the previous segment, you see the uh, indoctrination that's going on, and it's blatant. It is, um, you know, often uh, la- there's a lack of transparency that teachers and the schools are trying to keep things from parents, but, um, you know, for them, for the parents, they were able to see uh, a lot of this because they were looking over the shoulders of their kids and not liking what they're seeing, which is why, you know, uh, one of the reasons why I wrote my book, The Homeschool Boom, is because, um, you know, you had all of these different factors, the pandemic, the, uh, the distance learning, you know, parents being able to see for the first time what's going on. And that's why, you know, uh, uh, parents in record numbers are pulling their kids out of the public schools across the country and in California. And uh, millions of uh, parents uh, have pulled their kids out. And we've seen a drop in uh, public school enrollment across the country, anywhere from two to three million. And Therefore, uh, you know, a lot of those kids are actually being homeschooled. Some of them are going to private schools, but actually the majority of those kids are now being homeschooled because parents want the control that only homeschooling can really truly give them when it comes to what uh, is taught to their children. Why do you think, Lance, based on on your research, and and, and clearly as we've both pointed out, the, the pandemic pushed a lot of this to the breaking point for many parents... Uh, but even prior to that, we've gone through waves of the Bush administration, no child left behind, and, and uh, you know, teaching to outcome-based uh, performance, uh, things of this sort, where, where it seems like every time some branch of, of, of education comes up with the new thought, the new method, the new idea, we pour millions billions of dollars into it, and then it turns out to be an utter failure, achieves none of its goals. Meanwhile, we look at examples within private schooling arena, be it uh, private school, Christian, uh, parochial, uh, as well as within the homeschooling arena, and discover much perhaps maybe to the surprise of, of public educators that returning back to the basics seems to provide the greatest outcomes with higher SAT scores and a higher degree of children that graduate after they've finished their uh, high school career, matriculate on to two- and four-year colleges and universities, quite successfully so, and the bulk of the education is just simply focused on the basics, you know, the old three R's. Why... Why do parents understand that? Why do private educators understand that? But seemingly at the government level, that whole point of the basics seems to be lost on them. Well, you know, that's a, you know, absolutely right. You're right in every respect, uh, Craig. And I think the reason why the public education sector doesn't realize that, or actually doesn't care, is because, you know, it's all about the money. You want to know why schools are failing? Follow the money. The, the revenues that uh, uh, are going into education often end up in the pockets of special interest groups. And so, like the teachers' unions and others who have huge interest in where that money goes, you know, they don't care about whether that money goes into the basics, into the teaching of kids, you know, so that they could um, uh, learn. You know, uh, what they want is they want, you know, higher salaries. They want uh, their ideological agenda to be pushed. And so all of those sorts of special interest uh, objectives are what's on the 
um, you know, uh, on the list of goals for public education, unfortunately. And really, when it comes down to really teaching the kids uh, the basics, you know, the math and reading and writing, you know, that's actually lower down on the list, no matter what the rhetoric of the politicians are. And so... I think that when you look at uh, the uh, private schools, but and especially the homeschoolers, you know, uh, the, the public education sector will often criticize homeschoolers, saying that, well, how can parents teach their kids? Well, first of all, as you uh, alluded to, the research shows that uh, uh, homeschoolers actually outperform regular public school students uh, in the vast majority of studies that have been done. And also, too, the, uh, the reason why uh, the, uh, parents can... Uh, have high-performing uh, students, regardless of their income or, uh, or cultural background, is because of the ability to choose curricula that best fits the needs of their individual students, not a one-size-fits-all that best fits the needs of the school, the teachers' unions, and the special interests. Well, even if they took a one-size-fits-all approach and said, okay, we all have to learn to this standard, when you graduate or complete this grade level, we're expecting you to, to perform at this efficiency level, this proficiency level, rather, so that you can be competitive in the real working world when you eventually get to it. And for those students that fail to do so, to provide the kind of remedial education, tutoring that's necessary to bring them up to grade standard. I mean, I, I've always kind of struggled with the notion that we're going to flex it for everybody. Now, I I realize not everyone's going to be a, a, a research individual, not everybody's going to be a talk show host, not everybody's going to be a doctor, but at least to provide students with fundamental basics. But, but not only does that seem to be uh, problematic here, but I, it, reading between the lines, what I think you're suggesting is that we've gone from preparing children's minds to be able to, to, to survive and compete and live and succeed in the real world to almost indoctrinating, and I use that word with some hesitancy, but I think it's appropriate, indoctrinating children that will wind up carrying our, uh, or, 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 or the teachers' unions, whomever's calling the shots here, uh, they're carrying water on behalf of their agenda and what their priorities are from a political standpoint, and whether or not a child succeeds scholastically, well, that almost seems to be secondary or, or, or ancillary to what we're really trying to accomplish here. It makes no sense. No, it doesn't. It doesn't, Craig. And I think that if you think about it, the reason why a lot of these groups, let's just take the teachers' unions, for example, uh, are pushing this indoctrination agenda, whether it's critical race theory, gender identity politics, whatever, you know, is actually to distract people from the stark fact that they are failing when it comes to teaching our kids the basics. I mean, those uh, test scores that we've been talking about are all indications of failure of the system and the people who are operating that system, including the teachers' unions. And so in, to try and divert attention from that failure, they try to impose or uh, you know, distract people with uh, these political um, it, this political ideology and to try and get people to think that, well, it's not their fault, it's the fault of society. It's systemic racism. It's, you know, uh, you know what, whatever you'd like to say. But, uh, you know, it's, I think that's 
uh, you know, their goal. And that's why they want to have less accountability, which means like less testing. I mean, you're seeing, for example, um, you know, a, a couple years ago that we, that California got rid of the high school exit exam that you need to pass in order to graduate. We've eliminated uh, testing in certain grades throughout, uh, you know, public education. And now uh, the UC and CSU uh, university systems here in California have uh, done away with the requirement that you need to take the SAT or the ACT in order to uh, enter their institutions. So there's this, you know, huge um, effort to remove accountability tools uh, because I think that uh, it's embarrassing for the people who are operating the system. And the more that they can focus people's attention on supposed uh, racial problems, you know, in uh, in society rather than their own failings, the better for them. Well, and you know what's problematic about this, and we can dive into this a bit deeper when we come back after the break. You know, if we if we apply the same approach to every aspect of life, we're suddenly we're essentially changing the rules because we're not as much focused on performance levels and understanding and the ability of the student to 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 capture and comprehend the subject matter being taught and then use that information as part of sort of their 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 bag of tools to succeed through life but instead it's more about how they feel in the process and if you have a student that uh, like me that never really did good at math i i excelled in uh history and social science and political science math yeah if i had to count to 11 i had to take at least one shoe off to get there <laughs> but uh, when when you're suddenly concerned about not not the performance level and what a student is walking away with in terms of again their 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 depth of understanding and capacity to to uh, uh, be able to comprehend the content and instead about how they feel. Well, uh, imagine if we now took that same approach to uh, medical doctors and said, look, at the end of the day, you know, if you're going to medical school and, and your performance in remembering the names of medications and, and the parts of the body or, or even how well you do in surgery, you know, if, if you're not really at the top of your class, that's okay. And at the end, it's about how you feel. And we don't want you to feel bad. I, Lance, would not want to be attended by a physician or a surgeon who passed medical school based on how well they felt about the process. I want to know that my doctor knows his or her stuff, that they're top in class, that they're brilliant, that they're capable and equipped because they've got my very life in their hands. And it just seems to me that this direction that we're heading in eventually means we're going to be dumbing down every aspect of American life. And I think we all need to understand that there are literal and figuratively uh, grave consequences to taking such an approach. More from Lance Izumi, the homeschool boom, pandemic policies and possibilities. Much more to unfold in this discussion tonight. Stay with us. Our conversation with Lance Izumi continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to the conversation. Lance Azumi with us this evening. His new book is called The Homeschool Boom, Pandemic Policies and Possibilities. And um, as we're sort of uh, pulling back the layers of this very uh, exceedingly problematic onion, uh, you know, the, the one perhaps unsurprising aspect of all of this, Lance, is the answer coming from Sacramento 
uh, it, it continues to be the, the, the single mantra, more money, more money, more money, more money. Uh, I, I don't know what the, the latest figures are. The last I looked, California, of all that we do, roads and all the infrastructure and police protection, fire protection, everything, the California budget had something like 54 cents out of every dollar collected going toward education. And yet the more that we seem to spend, the the more disappointing the outcomes are. And I guess, therefore, is it any wonder that particularly with the lesson that we saw, the kind of the glimpse behind the curtain, as you say, during the pandemic, that more and more parents are saying, you know what, I just can't support this anymore. And they're turning in significant droves to homeschooling. And I was a little shocked at some of the numbers you shared with me, uh, just how big that number actually is here in California. No, it's uh, it's huge, actually. I mean, if you look, for example, um, across the country, uh, the number of uh, homeschoolers could be, depending on uh, what estimate, but the Homeschool Legal Defense Association last year estimated that there may be up to 8 million uh, kids who are being homeschooled across the country. And here in California, which, you know, people think is a blue state, so it might not be uh, very hospitable to homeschoolers, or maybe uh, parents won't be as interested in homeschooling as maybe in other states. You've actually seen a doubling of the number of uh, kids who are being homeschooled. Uh, one recent estimate that I saw said that, you know, the, uh, prior to the pandemic, you may have had 200,000 kids who are being homeschooled in California, and uh, during the pandemic, that has doubled to uh, 400,000 or more kids who are being homeschooled. And so, you know, you're seeing this huge, uh, as I t- uh, mentioned in the title of my book, this huge boom in homeschooling. And it's not just in red states, it's in blue states, it's all across the country. It's in every demographic group, it's, uh, whether it's on race or uh, ethnicity, religion, or income status. All groups across this country are, you know, fleeing to homeschooling because they're so dissatisfied with the performance uh, and the actions of the regular public school system. Wow. Now, the, the one concern in all of this is that not every parent can do this, obviously. Uh, it, it, it takes financial capacity, particularly if you're looking at a two-income household and one of the parents is going to choose to stay home and, and educate the children um, it, it takes the discipline, you know. It, it's uh, it's easy to say, ah, not today, <laughs> you know. When sending them off to school every single day, it's kind of an, an easy habit to develop. Uh, so when you see such startling increase, as you point out, more than doubled uh, since the launch of the pandemic, in your mind, is this indicative, Lance, of a growing number of parents in California that have said, you know what, we're willing to make the extreme sacrifice of time and finances, quite frankly, in order to make this happen. Because after all, your kids only get one shot at an at a at a fundamental foundational education and upon which everything else in life is built on that. Yeah, no, absolutely, Craig. Absolutely right. I think parents are making that decision as you and I speak, uh, that, uh, you know, they cannot afford to allow their kids to stay in a school system that is not only indoctrinating uh, their children, but also failing to provide them with the academic uh, and knowledge skills necessary for them to succeed in life. And so, I mean, if you're going to raise your child, um, you know, the most 
important thing in your family's life, you know, you need to have them in a situation where they're going to get the best type of learning experience possible, and they're certainly not getting it for the most part in the regular public schools, which I should point out, you know, uh, if you look at the federal data on who's homeschooling, what you find is that actually the proportion of families who are making $25,000 or less who are homeschooling is actually higher than the proportion of families who are homeschooling who are making between 100000 and 150000 And what that is saying is that, first of all, their kids are probably going to some of the worst schools, uh, you know, in their area. Secondly, they're making that sacrifice. Maybe they were making more money, but they were willing to forego that money in order to uh, get their kids out of a failure factory masquerading as a public school and homeschool them at home and uh, uh, so that they can have a chance in life. And so I think that's what you're seeing. Uh, is, and I think that one of the reasons why you're seeing this increase is not just because of the failure of the regular public schools, but also because uh, the pandemic has actually opened up working, um, uh, the, working the workplace to much more flexible uh, hours, much more flexible um, you know, arrangements such as uh, working at home. So it actually becomes much more doable for many more parents to homeschool their children than before when everybody seemed to have to go to a nine-to-five job and that was very rigid and you didn't have a lot of exceptions to that. And now you see so many people who have much more flexible schedules which make it much easier for them to fit homeschooling into that schedule. So we've really seen as a result of the pandemic not only the opening of eyes but the opening of opportunity, as you point out, more and more Employers are are happy with flexing time, with uh, making adjustments and accommodations for work at home, which frees up potentially more parents to be able to do just this, to educate their child at home. But one question that lingers, and we'll get to this after the break, is with the amount of money that we're recommending being spent here, the governor, rather, is recommending being spent upwards of $21,000 per student, what I find fascinating is that there yet remains certain schools, certain districts that perform phenomenally well. I have some working knowledge of one of the districts here on the peninsula, and uh, their their programs in STEM education and music, you would almost think that you were at a local university. They are so bang on. It is phenomenal, the work that they are doing. And And yet there are schools in the same state using supposedly the same curricula that are absolute disasters. Why do we see such huge disparities? We'll talk about that and more. Lance Izumi, our guest tonight, information again um, about his book. You can order it online through Amazon.com by simply uh, looking up the homeschool boom, pandemic policies and possibilities. A timeout back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Lance Azumi with us tonight. We've been discussing the state of education in California, the disparity we're seeing uh, at many levels as this this steady march towards um, politicizing and, and, and creating social justice outcomes. And, I, and again, I, I want to be clear. It's not that there isn't a place for that kind of education or those sorts of discussions. But that's what history classes are for. That's what political science and civics classes are for. Math? Really? 
And yet that seems to be the agenda. And along with it, as more and more parents are realizing just what's going on in our state, we've seen post-pandemic an explosion of parents homeschooling, making the sacrifice because they recognize, as I said before, your child has one chance at building a firm educational foundation. One of the um, the inconsistencies here, Lance, that maybe you can help us better understand, the governor talks about spending potentially $21,000 per child. Uh, the proposal comes up to $119 billion, a record amount for uh, K-12 through programs in the state of California. And yet, as I mentioned before the break, there are some schools and some districts that perform exceedingly well and others that are complete total failures. The, the, trying to recognize the difference between that school and a local prison is probably difficult. Why is that? I mean, I understand that a portion of the local property taxes go into public education. So if you live in Compton, California versus, uh, I don't know, um, uh, Atherton, California, there's going to be some difference there. But I thought on average the state helped equalize everything out. But it sounds as if not every child gets a fair shake and your zip code means a lot when it comes to just what kind of an education you may potentially have access to. Is that true? Yeah, no, that's true. That is very true, uh, actually, Craig. I mean, part of the, the reason is because it's not how much you spend, it's how you spend the money, right? I mean, you could be getting record amounts of money, as California has been giving schools in recent years, and, uh, you know, the, the schools will be getting record amounts this year again uh, because of uh, the state surplus. And so... You know, you would hope that that would mean that uh, the uh, performance would increase, but there's really you know, data shows that there's no real correlation between the amount of money you spend and the performance of the kids because of the way uh, schools will spend their money. And let me give you an example. Uh, just in the Bay Area, for example, uh, there, uh, a woman who was the former uh, president of the Oakland School Board, Shanti Gonzalez, just recently resigned after seven and a half years on the uh, Oakland School Board. And, you know, she's a liberal, but her focus has always been, to her great credit, on improving student achievement. And yet she uh, wrote an incredible uh, resignation letter in which she excoriated, for example, uh, the uh, Oakland Education Association, the local teachers union, uh, and their allies for opposing those types of, uh, academic decisions such as the implementation of a phonics-based reading program in the schools that have, that were very successful, but oppo- opposing those things for ideological grounds. And because of that, you know, Oakland continues to suffer when it comes to student performance. You look at, you know, the Oakland's um, test scores, and they're, you know, uh, they're terrible, and certainly terrible compared to uh, many other districts, uh, such as the ones you mentioned. But, um, you know, it's not for the lack of money. It's how that money is being spent and, uh, you know, who's putting up the roadblocks uh, to the implementation of uh, curricula and other types of learning tools that will actually make a difference in the lives of these kids. And unfortunately, you know, that's not an issue of money. That's an issue of uh, philosophy and uh, ideology. Well, and you you made a reference, and I want to come back to it because it it, it bears uh, highlighting and underscoring, and that is also the the big role that school boards play in all of this. I mean, it's from the teacher in the classroom, the influence of of the union, 
to the school boards and what their priorities are. I mean, <laughs> in in the beginning days of the pandemic, when the students were all being sent home, they had no idea how they were going to pull off so-called distance learning. Valuable time was being lost. Students were just, you know, kind of floundering. And instead of trying to address these issues, albeit against the backdrop of, of unprecedented second set of circumstances that none of us have lived through, unless you're over 100 years old, before. And yet, what was the San Francisco Unified School District Board discussing? Were they talking about creative ways to engage in, in distance learning and, and ways in which students that didn't have access to computers or the Internet could, could, could gain access to same? No, no. Instead, what they were discussing was whether or not George Washington High School ought to remain George Washington in high school, or should we change the name? And then there was, in fact, a recall of parts of the board over that very same issue, which I guess goes back to the sense that I, I, I imagine many of these parents that you've talked to and, and even researched for your, your book, The Homeschool Boom, Pandemic Policies and Possibilities, that, that a lot of parents look at this and it just they've got to be stupefied by what's going on. No, they absolutely are. You know, I profile, you know, a number of different parents uh, in my book, The Homeschool Boom. You know, and uh, one of the uh, things that you get from the parents is the fact that uh, not only, you know, have their children experienced things such as safety issues like bullying, but also, too, the, you know, a number of them have been the object of, um, you know, uh, political uh, or uh, ideological targeting. And it's, you know, it's a terrible thing for a young person, you know, who doesn't have a whole lot of context, hasn't lived a life experience, you know, outside of school to be able to withstand that and be made uh, an example of something very bad that is beyond their control. And so, you know, I think that, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, parents, again, have decided that, you know, they need to take control of their uh, children's lives. There's no accountability on the part of the public schools for the use of the money to improve the performance of their kids. Uh, parents can see that now, and they can see that, you know, hey, I actually had to supplement my kids' uh, learning uh, at home because the schools certainly weren't doing it while the pandemic was going on. And so uh, if I could do a better job than the school was doing, why don't I just do that full time? Yeah, that makes sense. And again, as I said uh, um, probably three times in our, our dialogue tonight, uh, parents understand that the, the, you can only do the job right the first time. You, you can't get them to 18 and say, whoops, well, that was a big mistake. Let's turn back the clock and start all over again. It doesn't happen that way. And so getting in one shot at getting it right is so critically important and sadly on an increasing basis public education, again, not all schools, not all districts, but a lot of them just don't get it right. Lance, for the benefit of listeners who were intrigued by our discussion tonight and, and maybe even had their eyes open a little bit further in terms of the possibilities, as you point out, just the pandemic change and the way we do work uh, has opened up the door for more and more parents to be able to look at the idea of of, of uh, homeschooling as, as something very viable, very possible. Folks want to get more information about that and your book. Where's the best place to point them? 
Well, I think that, you know, a couple places, Craig, uh, people who are interested in getting a copy of the homeschool boom can go on to Amazon or to you know, Barnes & Noble or to any online bookseller, and they can order the book through that. You know, for uh, uh, more information on, you know, my op-ed writing, my studies, my uh, briefing papers that I, you know, produce for the Pacific Research Institute, go to uh, Pacific Research, all one word, PacificResearch.org, and uh, click on the education icon uh, under the research uh, uh, banner up there at the top, and they'll, uh, you'll be able to access all my writings, and I think it'll be extremely informative for your audience. I, I think so, too, and, you know, we, we've, we've talked before and followed your work for many, many years, and we appreciate what you do, Lance, not only in terms of standing in the gap on behalf of, of parents and taxpayers in this state, but also helping to educate all of us. We get a better understanding of not only what's going on, but also gain a better understanding of what we can do to take back control. Because after all, it's not just our children's future that's at stake here. It's the future of an entire nation. Lance Asumi, The Homeschool Boom, Pandemic Policies and Possibilities, available, as Lance mentioned, through Amazon.com. More information about his work online at PacificResearch.org. That's PacificResearch.org. Check out the Education tab. Our thanks again to Lance Suzumi for being with us tonight. Coming up around the corner, we're going to have a uh, bit of a shift in our dialogue. You uh, undoubtedly over the weekend heard the tragic news of yet another shooting. We had one at a church down in Southern California. We'll be addressing that. Um, And the one in Buffalo, New York, my, my. It's just um, ought to be a wake-up call, folks. And we seem to have the same answer over and over and over again. Pastor Darius Pridgen will join us, senior pastor of True Bethel Baptist Church. He is the president of the Buffalo City Council there in Buffalo, New York, upstate New York, and um, sadly later this week we'll be burying a number of his own congregation members in the wake of this senseless, racially motivated mass killing. One of, my goodness, hundreds in this country in the last 40 years. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.